So, yeah, no, I take it off for the Bible study so it doesn't interrupt you guys' sound. There we are. Hi, hi, hi. How y'all doing there? Okay, Psalm 119, verse 121. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not lead me to my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well-being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love. Teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. Because I consider all your precepts right, I hate everyone you have. All right. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to be in your presence once again. And we thank you for this class. We thank you for this precious word you've given us. And uh, we just, uh, of course, have many people that have needs that are out there, physical needs and uh, some uh, financial needs that have been raised up. And uh, just people that attend online and the people that are here. We uh, pray for each and every one of them, and we ask that you will be with them, help them through their troubles, and help us to be willing to assist if if needed. And uh, either way, when the good times come or when the bad times come, just give us enough praise to, enough strength to praise you and to thank you for the things you have, been, have given to us. And Lord, it is so good, it is so wonderful to share in your word with these other people here today and those that are online. We thank you for that. We thank you that uh, we still have the freedom to do this in this nation and we would pray that that would continue and it would not be something that we would lose in the days ahead. But all things are directed by you and you know, you know the end from the beginning and so whatever happens, we'll just commit ourselves to you and trust in you through it, whatever it is. And uh, once again, we thank you for this word and we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, give me the answer there, Tom. Working on it, Charlie. Working you haven't heard anything. No. Okay, do, you did go. No. Oh. Well, you, <laughs> working on it. You, you disobeyed the doctor's orders there. I have a couple reasons. Okay. All right. Well, we're, we, you know, and uh, Steve, he's in the same boat right now. I just heard yeah, from him. He, he got back me, okay. And, he sent me a message. All right. Yeah, he told me. He, uh, yeah, we got both of you guys in prayer. So. Um, oh, I'm sorry. What, what's the situation with him? Uh, he, remember, he's, he's got, got that um, thing testing his heart, same as him. It, remember, he pulled off his shirt, and well, you were all tuckered out by then, so you might not have even remembered. I do remember something about it. He's got some of arrhythmia. Yeah, so he had something put under his skin to monitor his heart. Okay, I thought that was something that had been there for. No, they had given him something like what he had, but he sweat so much, much, I guess, that they just kept falling off, so they actually cut him open. They should have used the staples. Like yeah, staples. Yeah, just staples. staple it on. It Works every time. Okay, let me read you something. Unfortunately, I cut it in half when I opened it today, but uh, this is from some wonderful people that attend online, and she's always so gracious with her words. She writes about once a month, and uh, uh, it's uh, his name is Merlin and her name is Marlene, so we'll call them M and M and M because they're so sweet. Um, she said, uh, "My husband and I have been uh, born again believers for many years, um, lots of Bible study service. Yet your studies and sermons are just such ones that well, I shouldn't be giving you the compliments about me. Let me go on. Um, thank you for all that you do and provide your website." 
uh, the participation, this is why I wanted to read you, the participation at the Bible study really endears these sisters and brothers to our hearts. So you guys participating is something that she really is thankful for. It probably for. also means online. Yeah, a lot of oh, that's right. Oh, online too. Okay, well, I didn't even think of that. So the yeah, people yeah. that are online that are chatting, maybe they, she means that too. So blessings to you all. And uh, then she just signed her name again. So unfortunately, I cut it in half when I took my knife to open it. And so that's why it was hard for me to read. But um, anyway, just so you know, you're loved. And uh, I get letters like this quite a bit where people are always saying, send regards to uh, the uh, congregation. I got one from Sergio on Sunday, which I failed to tell you about. It's the last thing he said before I hung up Sunday morning is tell the congregation hi. And well, I'm telling you five days late, but there you go. Um, okay, we're in Romans 1. 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual, sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one mother. Okay, and I'm getting there very quickly. It's just that I didn't have my tab in there, so 124. Um, not, not the behavior. Yes. Um, okay, I'm going to read it from the New King James Version. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We really start degrading at this point in Romans. Um, as far as what Paul is describing. And uh, somebody sent me a really interesting uh, uh, link. It was to John MacArthur. And usually I don't watch things. People send me, every day I probably get 15 or 20 things. Would you please watch this and give me your opinion? And they're an hour long. So I, I, I can't do it because wow. uh, literally I can't. So I say, please just give me a synopsis and I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you an answer. But um, uh, this one was audio. And I just turned on the audio and I listened while I was doing some other things. And he had some comments about this um, as far as um, God giving them over. And he looked at that as a type of penal judge, uh, judgment on the world, as if God is actively doing it. And so I listened and I thought about it. And I've got some comments. It was very well done. but I, it, And I don't remember if I followed up and emailed her this or not. I, did, I remember telling her that I talked about it. And uh, or that I thought about it, but I hadn't come to a resolution. But I did come to a resolution on it, and I'll note that in just a second. But therefore, um, when you see this word in a passage, what do you do? That's right. Go back and see what it's there for. That's what therefore is. So uh, when you see this word, go back and see what it's there for. An argument has been submitted, and now comes the conclusion. In this case, therefore, is referring to verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. We talked a long time about that, ingratitude, but became futile in their hearts, and they, their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, that's what the, the substance of what he's saying, therefore, all right? Um, because of these things that Paul has spoken of, God also gave them up to uncleanness. They have turned from him, and now he gives them up. The 14th Psalm, speaking of the atheist, gives insight into this condition. And I read that last week. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's also Psalm 53.1. Okay? Um, now, 
here's what I added in to my notes that are online. Uh, Ephesians 4.19 shows that this is, remember MacArthur said this is God, uh, it's a judgment of God, them giving them up. But if you go to Ephesians 4.19, you can see that not everything is the way that it appears in one place. He says, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Let me go back and just start with 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. This ought to be familiar to you if you're following the daily Bible devotionals because we just did this a day ago. Um, Having their understanding darkened, this is speaking of the Gentiles, they're being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, Verse 19, who being past feelings, speaking of of those Gentiles, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So the conclusion is, it shows this is a voluntary action. It's the exact same word being used in both cases. When it says God gave them over, he is allowing them to give themselves over. So it's not an active judgment of God. It's an act of God just simply withholding his hand and saying, do what you want, okay? So I, that, it, that's an important point because that follows along with, for example, the doctrine of free will, right? Just as people say we don't have free will to choose God, we do have free will to choose God. We don't have free will to do this, well, we do have free will to do this. And just as MacArthur says God gave them over, it doesn't mean that God gave them over in the sense that he actively did it. He simply restrained his or withheld his hands and allowed them to give themselves over. Speaking of the exact same thing, it's just saying that the people did it. So God is not interfering, in other words, in their free will decisions. It's the same thing that happened with Genesis chapter uh, 3 when Adam fell. Same thing. God didn't interfere with that. He could have said, now listen, don't do that. I told you not to do that, but he did it. Yes. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Perfect example. If you followed the Pharaoh sermons and if you didn't, then you will come to the R.C. Sproul conclusions in your doctrine because he cites Pharaoh all the time. But we went through word by word in the giving over of Pharaoh voluntarily and then when it said God gave him over and the words used are so perfectly structured that every single bit of it is voluntary. And if you don't remember those sermons, you just have to go back and watch them all again and that'll be your assignment to tell me what it says on Sunday. There's about 18, maybe 20 sermons in a row and every time it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart or God hardened his heart, the words used are structured so clearly that there is no doubt that it is free will. God did not actively do anything. He did exactly what he did here. He just simply said, have it your own way, right? Like Burger King, okay? Hello, can we help you, ma'am? No, it's not here to go. Say hi to our precious lady. Don't say where she's from, but this is one of our missionaries that uh, is visiting from... uh, from overseas for a, a while, and uh, she's back for how long? Two and a half months? January. Till January. And uh, anyway, she what what did she do the very first weekend that she was back from from Malaysia? Malaysia. She's out at the projects with us, you know, doing mission work there. So she's a glutton for punishment. Even when she's off, she's doing doing the Lord's work. So good to have you here, sweetie. And uh, anyway, yeah. So um, uh, we're in Romans one twenty four right now, and we're talking about God giving people over, and I just equated that with uh, Ephesians 4.19, where it says that it's a voluntary action on the, the part of the people. So we need to be careful when we look at something not to read into it until we've taken in, you know, a, a broader perspective. And that's why word studies are really important, 
Because if you have a word study on a single word, people get kind of myopic on this word, but if you look at it through the whole Old Testament, it can actually bring you to a completely different conclusion. And uh, for the New Testament, Vincent's word studies is my personal favorite. He's very good about it. He gives great commentaries. There are plenty of vines and, uh, you know, Strong's does word studies, Helps does word studies. There's a lot of very good studies. Vincent's just happens to be my favorite, but um, uh, there are plenty of them. And if you follow the word studies, it will quite often help you. But what I would say about um, MacArthur's, excuse me, speech or his sermon at, uh, about God giving them op over and it being a type of judgment, it was not incorrect. Okay, it just wasn't fully correct. In other words, we are the ones that are free will doing it, and so God is said to give them over in this verse. It is true, but it's not true in the sense of, of the complete uh, perspective of what's being said. Just like free will, when we choose salvation, okay, we can say, well, God regenerated us in order to believe. Well, we can't say that, but we can use some of R.C. Sproul's precepts, and we can kind of come to a conclusion, but we have to look at the whole uh, New Testament and the Old Testament as well to come to the full realization that free will is a doctrine of man. And uh, uh, so it's important not to just jump on one single sermon and say, I've made my theology up, because it usually, sermons are given as a little package of a piece of scripture. It's usually not an overview of the entire verse or the entire word that's being used. Anyway, just wanted to make that known is that I'm not trying to in any way slam that sermon of his. It was very good, but it's the conclusion he made on this verse, which was the basis of the whole sermon, was not complete. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Okay, so um, it's important to understand that this is not a universal condition as some theologians claim. These are back to my original notes here, speaking of this. Um, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. How can I say that? It's not a universal condition. Does every person in the world that doesn't know Jesus go out and do unclean things? There are many people that are, you know, they live their whole life married to one lady and they never stray from her, right? Or one lady married to a guy and she never strays from him. So it's not a universal condition that he's speaking about here. Um, Calvinism uses a portion of this psalm, the one that I cited, um, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, okay? Calvinism uses a portion of this psalm quoted by Paul in chapter 3 of Romans to make uh, an all-compassing claim on the state of man. Hello, how are you today? You're sick? Well, why are you here then? I have to get a, a pen to, uh, to make a little note here while I'm talking to you all really quickly. Um, I do this a lot, and so um, there we go. An all-encompassing all claim on the state of man. However, when Paul cites a verse, its context must be taken into consideration. Okay, David was a man who sought after God, and he wrote the psalm. So you can't take that psalm and say the fool says in his heart there is no God and apply that to every single person on earth because David could not have written those words if it applied to him as well. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, therefore, it would be a pretext. A pretext means a lie. They say a verse taken out of context is a pretext. Take a verse out of context, it's a lie. All right, um, where was I? It would be a pretext to claim a universal application to none who does good instead of applying it to those who deny the existence of God, which is the, the, what that particular psalm was speaking of. This, therefore, speaking of those who turn from God, as Paul describes, moving from one level of depravity to another as their foolish hearts are darkened. And as I said, not everybody on earth does all of the depraved things that Paul speaks about. 
not everybody inevitably turns into a homosexual, which is what he's going to say is coming, okay? So it, it, it is not appropriate to say that this is universal. It is what the general trend of mankind goes from and to, is what Paul is speaking of. When you do this, this logically follows, this logically follows, and in the sense of a society, it may take hundreds of years. You look at America, and we started out at this point, and we've slowly de devolved, but all of a sudden, it's almost become, you know, like a turning on a light switch. I mean, we've come to a point now where suddenly it's completely acceptable. That doesn't mean that everybody is going to turn into a homo, all right? But it has become acceptable within the society, all right? So, um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, this there is for speaking of those who turn from God, as Paul describes, moving from one level of depravity to another as their foolish hearts are darkened. As they progress into a more and more depraved state, God gives them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. That's what he says in that verse. In their rejection of God, they become mere sensual beings without rational thought. Okay. If that is not completely evident in the world today, then maybe we should go to another book of the Bible. You know what I'm saying? The, the people have gone completely into the sensual realm, and there is no longer any rational thought at all. It's like we saw the, um, uh, the four-year-old that decided that he wanted to be a girl in California, and the parents say, okay, we're gonna do this, right? That happened just in the past couple weeks, it's on the Prophecy Update, is that people are no longer even thinking rationally. They completely throw reason to the wind, they do anything to deny the existence of God, to deny that there is a moral standard, that what they're doing is inappropriate, and what has happened, not only the parents want it, but the society is doing nothing about it. When, as I said in the Prophecy Update, those people ought to be put in jail. They ought to be charged with child abuse. The child should be taken from that home and never allowed to be around them again, ever. They are incompetent as parents. And yet society has now devolved to the point where that judge may not be a homosexual, but he is making decisions that are in line with this agenda. And that's what Paul is speaking about. So this isn't universal in the sense that everybody acts in this way but it is almost universal in society. There are very few people that are not actually willingly jumping into this in the society anymore. You watch TV and it's become acceptable to not turn the TV off when you see somebody that's doing something that wouldn't have even been mentioned a couple years ago. All right, so this is a logical progression that Paul is writing about, but not universally applied in the individual. That's what I want to keep stressing on this. Um, Remember, though, some of those who appear most intelligent are those who are professing to be wise, as Paul says, and yet they fall into this same category. Their supposed wisdom is directed by the lusts of their hearts. The Greek word is epithumias, and it indicates a desire of some sort. In Paul's context, the word lust is spot on. All right, and like I said, just look at the world around you. They may be incredibly intelligent people, and yet their hearts are geared towards something. Perfect example, perfect example. The highest position in the land. Now, I'm not talking about the guy there right now. I'm talking about the guy that was there two presidents ago. And that's all that you see. If somebody talks about Bill Clinton, what do they talk about? They don't talk about anything great he's ever done. They just talk about the girls that he continuously is being involved with. His picture is almost daily shown with another girl from some party somewhere. So this is something that is is. Even the wise, the people that profess to be wise, are caught up into this type of thing. Um, 
They're filled with an animal instinct which directs their thoughts and hearts even to the point of dishonoring their bodies among themselves. If you know the, what Bill Clinton has been accused of, and it's, it's not that it's just an accusation, it's that it's reality, but it's only brought out in certain newspapers, is that there's an island that he flies to. This guy has you know, a, an island where they just have women and they just do whatever they want. Okay, And that's what this is speaking about. People that are just completely debased. Whatever they're doing out there, I don't even want to discuss it. I mean, you know, they may have individual rooms, but it doesn't sound like it, if you know what I'm saying. So this is the kind of thing that they're talking about. Paul says that one thing leads to another that leads to another, and it's to the point where nothing matters anymore. Burning Man out in uh, the Nevada desert. Can you imagine that? It, just you, you don't want to know. You, you just don't want to know. The things that they're doing out there, once a year they have what's called the Burning Man Festival. And it is, it's, it, I, I just, you don't even want to know. Just unbelievable. So, um, okay, a little life application on this verse. <clears throat> the more we turn to idolatry, intentionally or unintentionally, then remember, idolatry can be anything. Idolatry can be money. It can be work. It can be, you know, you could be a pastor and have a church and be idolizing the church. I, I, I want this with, for the church, and I want this for the church. And it becomes the focus instead of the God who you're supposed to be worshiping in that church. Anything can become an idol. Uh, and whether it's intentional or unintentional, the more we separate ourselves from God, not walking under a ladder is a smart way of not having a hammer fall on your head. But if your intent is to avoid bad luck, then it is a step in the wrong direction. Knocking on wood, you know, we do these things innocently, but if we're doing it for a specific purpose, it may be that we're setting up an idol. One thing leads to another. And a lot of things that we do like that, you know, people say, well, knock on wood, they don't even realize what they're saying. It's not like they're, you know, I'm not condoning it, I'm just simply saying that a lot of people have no idea why they say it. They saw mom do it, they saw their friend do it, and so they do it too, and they have no idea what it's meaning. But um, one thing that you can do, uh, it's kind of a different uh, tact of the same thought, but uh, when I would teach people English, I may have said this in this class, and if I have, I'm sorry. I hate to repeat myself, but when I taught people English at the Korean church, I used to, uh, I, the first three or four months, I had a really difficult time getting through to them. It was just very difficult, and I bought books, and you know, this is how to teach English, and it just wasn't really effective. And then one day I thought, well, I'm just gonna see if I can teach them idioms. And so I started teaching them only idioms. And I'm telling you, within no time at all, they could speak English so well. Because the problem was, they were in society. They're at church for an hour a week with me, or maybe an hour and a half. And then they're in society. And they're hearing people say things all the time. We use idioms without ever thinking about it. And we know what they mean, or at least we know what the, the, the meaning of that idiom, even if we don't know the, the, the root of it. And so we'll say something, ah, oh, the devil in the deep blue sea, or, you know, um, uh, stitch in nine saves time. We may not think about where it came from, but we know why somebody would say that. And once I started teaching them the idioms, and they were very interested in them, and what the idiom came from, everything else that they listened to when people were having a conversation fit into place. But until they understood that there are certain things that we say that have a completely different context than the words that are coming out of their mouth, right. they were lost. So, having said that, um, uh, if you are somebody that is doing an action, like knock on wood, it doesn't mean that you're an idolater. Okay, That's what I'm trying to say, is that some people will take that too far and they'll say, well, you shouldn't say that because 
they don't even know why they're saying it. But if they understand the root of a particular thing, then it may have a different context to them. All right. So be careful in judging. Be careful in uh, uh, finding fault in somebody that says something that really is not in any way harmful. Here's a perfect example. This is one of my pet peeves too. Christmas trees. Anybody here have a Christmas tree in their house during the uh, season? Uh, lots of hands, okay? You are condemned to hell by a lot of Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, by a lot of them. Oh, oh do you know where that originally came from? And if you ask anybody in here, do you know where it originally came from? No. Then you are not doing it for the purpose of the original intent. You're doing it for a different purpose entirely. And if you ask them the same question about something that they do, they will say, oh, well, that means nothing to me. So they're applying a double standard to you and your Christmas tree or you and your whatever, okay? It's, it's something that you have to be careful when you're condemning another Christian over is that what is their intent? You know, I, we have the wreaths up on the wall every Christmas that Paul and Elaine bought for us, right? I can't tell you how often people will send me emails and say, well, you are just, you know, that's the devil and blah, blah. What? Hello. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, there are a lot of legalistic people out there. I don't remember reading in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him and does not put up a Christmas wreath shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? The Christmas wreath means something entirely different to this congregation than it does to the person that developed it for whatever a Christmas wreath means. And I have no idea what the original meaning of it is. Okay? But so this... Some even say when you say bless you, when you speak... Sure. That's another one. Yeah, people will say, God bless you, all right? They'll say, well, that's uh, everything. You can take this, you can take our language, and you can take every single thing that we have done, and you can parse it so much that you can't say anything anymore. And I'm not going to get into that ever with people again. Like I said a, a few weeks ago, people will email you, and they'll say, well, you shouldn't say this, and you shouldn't say that. And there's a point where you have to say, I have to say something. I have to do something, and if I'm doing it, and my conscience is clear, as Paul says very clearly in this word, then just do it. All right. Like a, a tenth of your spices. A tenth of it's your like, spices. It's like you know, just some so legalistic. Oh yes, 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 it's exactly. Like, yeah. it's, it, it is legalism built on legalism built on legalism, and yet the same thing applies to them, and they don't acknowledge it when you know the word. Oh, I was so fortunate. Where did that come from? Fortune, the god of fortune, right? We use it all the really? time. I yeah. Didn't know that. Well, there you go. So <laughs> you can you can finally parse yourself out of saying anything at all, and you might as well just go into a monastery. I, there, there's no point in that type of thing. But um, seeing as how we're talking about idioms, very quickly, I'm going to give you just one. Where does the term "the whole nine yards" come from? I know. I, I know because I told you. So don't say it. <laughs> does anybody else here know where "the whole nine yards" comes from? It's just a great one. It has nothing to do with football. Nothing. It's because in World War II. The, um, the fighter pilots had 27 feet of ammunition put into their guns. And when they did a strafing run, they'd give the Japs the whole nine yards. So there you go. Okay? Now you know. Okay? Just, I love idioms. Man, I tell you, I could, I could just... If Sergio and I will send each other idioms all day long sometimes. We'll get on a roll. And, no, it, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, if you want to have fun and if you want to learn the basis of a lot of things you say, just type in most common idioms or roots of idioms and then get a friend and throughout the day just email each other idioms and try to outguess each other. What do they know this one? Do they, And Sergio and I will get into that once in a while and it's just a fun thing to do. Anyway, um, 
And it helps him because, believe it or not, I when I told him about yeah. idioms, he was like, oh, and he couldn't believe it. Yeah. He was learning. I never knew what that meant, and so I had no idea what people were talking about. Yeah. And so yeah, I told him, learn one idiom every day. I don't know if he still does it or not, but it will help you in your English. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy that speaks perfect English, mm-hmm. and yet the context is completely lost on the words because the substance behind the words. Someone anyway. can embarrass you because oh, yes. the rule of thumb. Ooh. Oh, yeah, sure. There, there are a lot of embarrassing idioms out there that we just say. So there you go. Um, okay, 125, go ahead. 25, okay, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Amen, all right. This thought shows the continued progression of the idolatrous heart as it continues down the spiral of depravity. You just, and I, I, I use this as an example just because it's something everybody sees every day is when you flush a toilet, it starts slowly and it goes faster as it close, goes down. If you look at any whirlpool, that's the way it's gonna be. The outside you can swim out of, but by the time you get towards the center, you can't anymore, right? And then you just go right down. This is what Paul is doing. He's showing us the spiral of depravity. And in America right now, we are in a spiral of depravity. And if we don't pull out of that spiral of depravity, we're going to be joined with the rest of the world in it. That's the only option that we have at this point. And as I said, it, I, I'm not in the sense, I'm very political in myself, but I'm not political in the sense that I think that you have to do what I, I believe or I'm not going to like you. I've got friends that are on every spectrum of the world in politics. But if you are a person that cares about particularly the issue of abortion, then you have a moral choice to make right now. Because that is at the forefront of the spiral of depravity. It is at the very, I, I read something, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I read something today uh, on LifeSite News. It was posted yesterday and I reread it again today. And it literally brought me to tears about this issue. Something that if you read it, I don't think any person in here would not break down in tears. That horrible. That horrible, which is just something that happens all the time. So I, I just want you to know this is an issue that is that important as far as making the right decision on voting day this year. It doesn't mean that we're not going to continue down that path, but we know what's going to happen if we go with the left. We know. Okay, so uh, that's my little plug for voting again today, and I'll continue to make it until it's done. Um, uh, God has given these people up because of their rejection of him. And like I said, that's not an act of giving up. What was the point that you asked about today, uh, Burke? Oh, Burke was reading uh, my uh, Ephesians commentary for today and which one was it what was it that, oh the holy spirit do not grieve the holy spirit right and so that's in there and then i said obviously the holy spirit cannot be grieved and he came in and he said well that's a contradiction and i said no it's not and he says well what do you mean the bible says that he can be grieved and i said that is from our perspective god is impassionate god doesn't get happy he doesn't get sad God is love. He doesn't grow in love. He doesn't reduce in love. Okay? And when I told him this, then he said, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. The Bible is written from, for our perspective. It's not written from God's perspective. God doesn't need the Bible. He gave us the Bible for our benefit. And the perfect example of this is the statement, the sun also rises. You've all heard that from a book, book of Ecclesiastes. It's also uh, written by, what's his name? Steinbeck. Uh, Stein, yes, Stein, yes um, Steinbeck. Um, anyway, the sun also rises. Guess what? The sun doesn't rise. Okay? The earth goes around the sun. Okay? The sun from our perspective rises. 
And so when you think of God and you think of his word for us, he is writing it for our benefit. So the Holy Spirit does not grieve in the sense that we would think of. It is us doing something wrong which would cause a person, if it was, if he had emotions like we do, to be grieved. In other words, and here's the way to uh, help you remember this because I've explained this before. When you receive the Holy Spirit upon belief, the moment you believe you receive, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that's all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. You're never going to get any more Holy Spirit for the rest of your life, okay? The Holy Spirit can get more of you. And to explain that, and the reason why I'm repeating this now is because there's people online that may have never heard this. But when I married Hideko, I will never get more married. We're as married as we're ever going to be. But she can get more of me as I yield to her. She can learn about my heart. She can learn about my emotions, like watching God is dead and I'm crying there. Well, I didn't let her see me, so she didn't get that part of me, right? I was, I, I, that one scene came and I just broke down and I, I was like this and I didn't want her to know that I lost it. So she didn't get that part of me. That is what the Holy Spirit does. You get more of the Holy Spirit passively in the Greek. It is passive. Go look it up in, in the Bible and then go to that passage on Bible Hub and you'll see it says verb passive. That means that the Holy Spirit you are receiving passively. And how do you do that? I've given you at least four or five different ways of, of getting more of the Holy Spirit. Praying, reading the Bible, praising, right? Fellowshipping with other Christians. These are the way that you, you get the Holy Spirit. You've got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get, but you will passively receive more because he is getting more of you. Okay? So... Jesus received the Spirit without measure. Without measure. What does that mean, like, say, in reference to him? Because he is perfectly in line with the will of God. I'm not. As I come into line with the will of God through reading the Bible and applying it to my life, then I am receiving it more and more. But I will never receive it without measure because I'm always not fully focused on God. I'm not fully yielded to God. So you see the difference? He has it without measure, and he can give it without measure, but it's dependent on us yielding ourselves to him okay so same thing is here um uh we don't grieve the holy spirit in the sense that he is actually grieved like he goes oh charlie did something wrong and his heart is broken that's not what that means okay it is as if he is that way i have now distanced myself from him and i've put the wall up between us he hasn't okay um so um god has given these people up because of their rejection of him think of that that premise there and the way they did it is to exchange the truth of God for a lie, okay? The particular structure of this phrase, which is reflected in the Hebrew mind of Paul, means the true God, okay? There are false gods, and there's true God. There are false Christs, and there's the true Christ. When two nouns come together, one is used in the form of an adjective and thus qualifies the other. They have made an exchange, something of no value for that which is of infinite value. We, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay? They have sold their birthright for a bowl of soup. It's the same thing that Esau did. They have accepted the lie and shunned the truth. The word for lie here is sude. It's a falsehood. A pseudo-God and not the true God. So you can see he's making a contrast between the true God and a false God. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Whatever that lie is. And as I said, um, in the Old Testament uh, I read you from Isaiah... 44 was it last week and it says is this not a lie in my right hand that's what he's speaking of and Paul is thinking this way in the Hebrew way of looking at things this is a lie this idol is a lie and we ignore that 
and we go about and do every single thing that we can do to shun him and to find our way down the depravity highway. And this is our human nature. And we need to have a change, and that change is by coming to Christ. And from that moment on, we can receive more of Christ, but we have to do it through studying him. There is never, I do not, I, I know that people do believe this. I know that they think that this is how they're going to become more holy is by getting an external injection of Christ. It's not going to happen. You had to call on him and he came to you and he sealed you with his spirit. And if receiving the Holy Spirit uh, or, um, uh, um, what am I saying? If it's passive that we get more of the spirit, then that means that we have to do it. It is never externally injected in us. Okay. Even the, the uh, argument with Bezalel, which we've been going through in the, uh, the Exodus sermons. Bezalel is a man who was given the Spirit of God. It says, I have endowed him with the Spirit of God to do this and this and this, and he did all of these wonderful things. Does that mean that God actively infused him with the Holy Spirit in order to do those things? Or does that mean that God created him, knowing when he created Adam, that there would be a man eventually that would come born of this mother and this father and all of this genealogy named Bezalel, and he would have that spirit of wisdom in him. And I prefer that because it, to me, there, I, I just don't see any need to have an in, external injection of God inserted <coughs> into those type of verses. There are people all over the world that can do what Bezalel did. Okay. We have goldsmiths all over the world. We have silversmiths. We had Hiram, king of Tyre, who, uh, um, uh, Hiram Abiz, who am I thinking of? The guy that, uh, uh, you know, was the artificer for the temple in Jerusalem, right? And he was sent down by Hiram, king of Tyre, to Solomon to do the work. Never says the same thing about him that it did about Bezalel, and yet he had the same gifts. He, you know, he's the one that made the, uh, the two pillars. Out, I think it was the plain of Zeradatha or something. These things were massive. They were a hand breadth thick and they were, you know, 20 some feet tall, whatever. He had skills that allowed him to do that. Doesn't say they was injected externally. So the important thing, the point that I'm trying to make about that with many words, trying to condense them into few, is that we have to apply what God has given us. And one of the ways that we can apply what God has given us is to come here and to study the word. And we're not going to get smart in the word unless we study the word. Amen. I just don't believe people are going to say, I'm going to put this under my pillow at night and sleep on it, and it's going to, it's going to come into my head. It doesn't work that way. So, And same thing with any talent or any gift that you have, it is wasted if you don't apply it and if you don't increase your knowledge in it. Um, I was telling uh, Burke before everybody got here today, I have to, starting this month, I have to start taking my wastewater courses again. Right? I have to keep proficient in that because if I don't, in January, they're going to take away my license. And I dread doing that. But at the same time, what is it? I'm not going to find it too quickly, so I'm not going to look for it. But in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon says, um, uh, you know, set your hand to do one thing and set your hand to do another because who knows if the Lord will bless this or if he'll bless this. We don't know what the status of the superior word is going to be two days from now, right? We have no idea. And if I have to someday go back into wastewater, at least I won't give up something that is worth literally many, many years of study, Okay. And the way I do that is by continuing to study in it. Same thing with the Bible. If you aren't studying the Word, then you're getting farther away from the Word. So, um, let's see. Charlie, yes? Is sin nature and human nature the same thing? At this time, I would say yes. 100%. Because we have sin in us, and it's an infection. There's nothing that we can do to get away from it. Now, we can get... I shouldn't say that. 
in the absolute sense. But you know that by coming, let me ask you this way. Did you have a sin nature different? I'm talking about external display of it. Different today than you did 20 years ago? Yes. Yes, at 100%. And I think most of us could say the same thing. Why do you, you're the same person, right? You have all the same urges that you did before. Right. Why do you not exercise those urges now that you used to then? Well, I'm going to attribute it to the Lord. That's okay, you're going to attribute it to the Lord. Now, let me ask you something. If you had called on Jesus and never gone to church, do you think that you would be as attribute? You see what I'm saying? Not. Probably not. As a matter of fact, you'd probably be back doing whatever you were doing. Okay? Does, yeah, doesn't mean that you've... But it is a constant effort for us to continue to not use the sin nature. That's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord. That be strong in the Lord. That's exactly right. Because if we're not, we're either going forward or we're going back. And so, yes, the sin nature is something that is in us. And it's not going to not be in us. But I don't want to say that it's not something that we can't overcome. We just can't overcome it fully because it's a part of who we are until we're glorified. And then, what what is, uh, I think we're going to do this in Romans so I may be getting ahead of myself, but it doesn't matter because it's something that you can remember uh, for later. There are a couple of P's that you can remember about uh, sin. Uh, when you are justified, you are, when you call on Jesus and you are saved, you are justified. And at that time, the penalty, penalty for sin is taken away. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. And then set free. Yeah, you're set free from the penalty of sin. That is a done deal. Okay, then you also will have um, uh, the freedom from the power. power, freedom from the power of sin. How does that happen? That's what you're talking about right here. As you study, as you think on the Lord, be strong in the Lord, as you're doing those things, you are freed from the power of sin. And if I don't check myself every single day, a thousand times a day, the power of sin will have greater hold on me. So I know every person in here that cares is throughout the day saying, gee, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm not going to do that again. You've you're got that struggle. That's what you were talking about. And then finally, there's one more that's going to happen when the Lord comes for us. We're taken from the presence of sin. Okay? That is called glorification. This is justification. This is sanctification. This is glorification. And so those are the three Ps that we're dealing with, but we still have the presence of sin with us, and so we're struggling with it. That's why Paul okay. says, having not yet arrived. Having not yet arrived. I Thank you. So. You see, that's what I like about Dale's. He remembers well, verses. I'm a skeptic and I'm a saint, so it helps me drive me back to this. It does, so, but when you remember verses, you know, that's that that's always helpful, but that's exactly what, that's exactly, thank my, you. Thank you for that verse. My question, Charlie, was, yes. are they the same? That's my that's The my human question. nature, I would say yes, because until we're glorified, we're going to stay in this human nature. That's 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, the first man, Adam, the second man, Christ, and we will be like him. Okay, let's go there really quickly. Uh, I would say, yes, human nature is the same because we know non-Christians that are better at being free from the power of sin than most Christians. I know lots of them. I, I know lots of people that are very good, moral, upright people, but they're not freed from the penalty of sin. They have less power of sin over their lives, but they have a complete penalty against them still. But, uh, so I would say, yes, the two are, are the same, but we can work on that one, the uh, the sanctification. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll start down in verse 50-something. Um, no, we'll start at um, uh, verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. That's saying Adam, who was created, and Adam, Jesus. Okay, that's the contrast. 
However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. So we are in the natural, okay? Um, the first man was of the earth, made of dust, us. We're still in the human nature, okay? The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's, that is what we aspire to, is the Lord Jesus. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. We're being sanctified. Someday we will be like him, and that'll be explained in just a second. Um, uh, uh, as was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust, us, and as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. We are not heavenly yet, except positionally. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. We are seated in the heavenly realms right now with Christ. We're not actually there. It's a positional seating. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, right now we do, okay, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We don't yet. So the human nature and the sin nature are still tied together, and that's why we're struggling with the sanctification. Um, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. I'm going to go down a little bit, um, uh, a little more, a little more. Um, Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, us. It is raised in incorruption, what we will be. All right, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Everybody here admit to being weak? Even now? Okay, there you go. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised to spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, we've been given the life. Positionally, we're seated in heaven, but actually, we're still here. Okay, but our life is forever from the moment we call on Christ. And he's talking about our spiritual regeneration, he's not talking about the earthly body. Our spiritual regeneration is done. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it is a guarantee, and it is done. All right, um, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of the dust, meaning Adam, us, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Okay, and then he goes into the corruptible, incorruptible, and death is swallowed up in victory. And what does he say? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, our human nature, all right, and the strength of sin is the law. What that means is that God gave the law. Until a law was given, sin couldn't be imputed. If he never said to Adam, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, if he didn't say that, and Adam went and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God couldn't have imputed sin to him. But the strength of sin is the law. He gave him a law, sin revived. As soon as he heard the law, he ate of the fruit and he died, spiritually died. Okay, the connection was the connection was disconnected, and man died spiritually at that moment. He died later from the effects of sin. Okay, so that is what that's speaking of. The uh, the death uh, sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Are we under law? No, no. we're not because Christ has died for us. We are in Christ. He died. Uh, in fulfillment of the law, and thus we die to the law. And here's the point. Hang on. This, uh, but thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord? The strength of sin is the law. The law no longer has mastery over us. We are freed from its penalty. Right here. But you still need the power. 
That that's right. And this is this is the sanctification. There has to be a law there in order for us to to be sanctified. Right. That's right. And that's what the New Testament is telling us: what to do, what not to do. Okay. But we are free from sin's penalty, and we are guaranteed to be free from sin's presence. Right now, we're struggling with the law of human nature and the law of the new covenant. Whatever Paul says in the New Testament to us is directed to us. Jesus' words, once again, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not directed to the church. That goes for eschatology. That goes for uh, fulfillment of the law matters. It goes for all of it. He came to fulfill the law that we cannot live. And when people use that verse, it is is so annoying to hear people say... um, that uh, I have not come to uh, destroy the law, but to fulfill it until all, um, every jot and every tittle, you know, until all is fulfilled. You know what the verse I'm talking about. And people say, well, see, you're, you're bound to the law. That's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He fulfilled every jot and tittle for us. Amen. All right? He says, um, how was it that he said? I just said it now. I can't remember. Um, uh, until all is fulfilled. That's what he did. But for the people that haven't come to him, all is not fulfilled. So the law is in place for those who have not come to Christ. The law, meaning the law of Moses, and everything that it's detailed, everything is annulled in Christ. Hebrews chapter uh, 7, 8, and 10 says that explicitly. It is annulled, it is set aside, and it is obsolete. Paul says in Colossians 2.14, it is nailed to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. He is the embodiment of the law. Therefore, the law is dead. We are in Christ. We are dead to the law. Okay? People need to get that theology right. If you bring up Jesus' words from the Synoptic Gospels, of course you're going to have crazy theology. I need to do this and this and this and this. He's already done it. You're reinserting something that is fulfilled. It's done. Okay, um, especially, especially with eschatology. People invariably insert Matthew 24 into their prophecy uh, scenario, which is eschatology. Eschaton means last things. So the study of eschatology means the study of last things. In other words, prophecy. And almost every single prophecy teacher that you will listen to, I know of maybe two that will not use Matthew 24 for our end times theology. Why? Because it doesn't apply to us. And when he said that no man knows the day and the hour, there's nothing to do with the rapture. Nothing. Those are words that were spoken to Israel under the law, and what does that mean? It means that he is speaking to Israel at the end of days as they are still in the law, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. They have seven more years of that law to get it right, and that is who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to us. So when people email me, and I probably get 10 emails a day asking about Matthew 24, I say, that doesn't apply. The, 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 the parable of the five virgins, the five wise and the five foolish, nothing to do with the church. Nothing. If you remember who he is speaking to and under what dispensation he is speaking, you will have proper theology. And all of a sudden, all of it makes sense. But when you're watching prophecy video after prophecy video and people keep saying, well, Matthew 24 this and, you know, Mark uh, 14 that I think it is and Luke 23 or 22, of course you're going to be confused because the two don't match up. He's not speaking to us, okay? But the same thing is with the law is with, uh, with uh, eschatology. It's all one thing. Either the law is obsolete or it's not. If it is, then put it away. Okay, um, let's see here. In do, doing so, going back, not worshiping the true God, in doing so, they have now worshiped and served the creator, the creature, rather than the creator. This is any form of bondage in sin. 
any form of bondage and sin. Perhaps it is addiction to alcohol, drugs. Perhaps it's something seemingly as innocuous as vegetarianism. Now, I have no problem with somebody being a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for five or six years, okay? I saw something on TV. I didn't like what I saw. It grossed me out. The way they process meat in America, and I said, I'm never eating meat again. And I didn't have nothing to do with a religious thing, but it can become a religious pursuit. And in most vegetarians, it is, okay? Especially the vegans and the hardcore, you know, they can really be off on a, almost an idolatrous tangent with that. But just so you know, I do eat meat now. I gave up on caring what it is because, you know, you got to eat. And uh, I got to Israel and they served lamb and I said, oh, I was done. And so now that's all I eat. I just eat meat. I don't need anything else. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sorry, animals. The way they treat you when you die is very sad, but you sure are nummy. Um, let's see here. Um, okay, so uh, uh, vegetarianism. What was supposed to bring freedom, think of, think of vegetarianism. What's supposed to bring freedom, what does it do? It enslaves you. You suddenly become in bondage. And all of a sudden, you're scared to eat anything because you're afraid that maybe an animal licked that. Now I'm eating animal saliva or something. It doesn't matter what it is, what addiction it is, you become enslaved by the addiction. When at first you thought it was setting you free. Okay? Um, let's see here. Um, Vegetarian is mentioned simply because it is contrary to God's law. Now, there is this one group of messianics, and a lot of people follow along with them. I think they're called, there's a term, it begins with E. Uh, I want to say is seen. Uh, anyway, there's, there's a guy that everybody listens to in prophecy circles. I think it's uh, Danun is his name. And these guys don't eat meat. And they say that the original intent was that man was not to eat meat, that that was a uh, condensation of God in Genesis chapter 9, where it says right here, before this, they didn't eat meat, okay? Here's what it says. It says in Genesis chapter 9, if I can ever get there, 18, 1, too far, 20, okay? It says, um, oh, where was that? Okay, it says they got up by uh, reckoning. Every moving thing that lives, this is Exodus 9. I'm going to go back to 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on the, all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Does it make any distinction of clean and unclean animals? No. At that, that point, it says every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given... Uh, you uh, all things even as the green herbs so it's implied that they did not eat meat before that point okay and so they say the original intent was that man was not to eat meat and therefore we are not to eat meat Does anybody see the problem with that what was the verse that I read you right before that and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth what does that imply that it wasn't before so there's a completely different economy in the world now not only are the animals now afraid of you, but you're also now allowed to eat the animals. So everything is different. It has nothing to do with what God originally mandated and what he's now condescending for man to do. It has nothing to do with it. Because originally the animals weren't afraid of man. The animals probably didn't propagate in the same way, and because they didn't, there were fewer of them, whatever, and now they're going to take over the world if we don't eat them. So get eating your animals. That cow may eat you, right? Okay, so the point is that that is a bad theology. And guess what? If it was wrong for man to eat meat, okay, even though God gave it as a condescension to us, if it's wrong 
then what does that mean about Jesus? Because he ate the Passover lamb, right? He did. The thing about clean and unclean is another. It, don't let people get you into that. We'll go through that sometime. We won't have time to do it today. But they, they will go to the Genesis account in Genesis 7 where it says that he sacrificed the, uh, the, or he brought clean animals onto the ark and unclean. And they say, well, see, there's a distinction always between clean and unclean, and we shouldn't eat pigs because of that. Nothing to do with it. Nothing. That Once again, that's a very long study. I'm not going to get into it. But any time that you get away from what the Bible allows and start going into what it, you think it doesn't allow, you are getting into legalism. You can eat any type of animal on this planet. Do we want? Yes? Um, I agree about the, all the animals. Yes. Right. No, no, I get that. But I think there's a lot of vegetarians that they, the reason they're not eating is if you, if there's animals that are raising in bass and living the way animals are right. being tormented and tortured. And that's where I had the problem. That's, I agree. That's where I had the problem was the way that people treat the animals. They're just more particular in where they're getting their meat. That's right, and a lot of uh, that's right. There are different stages of that. I know some that are in this stage. I know some that are in this stage. I know, and so what I'm trying to say is, it becomes whatever it is, it can become bondage. I wasn't in bondage because I didn't want to eat an animal because of the way that it was treated. But I could have then said, well, I'm not going to eat eggs now, and I'm not going to eat milk now, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, what I thought was liberating becomes bondage, and that's what Paul is speaking of. So if you have a particular thing, I'm not going to eat anything except free-range chickens, no problem with that at all. But if you say you shouldn't eat free ra- anything but free-range chickens, then you are now putting other people into your, and it shows that you're in a bondage. You see what I'm saying? Well, Whatever. You're not saying that to other people. That's right. You're just imposing the standard on yourself. Right. right. And I don't watch sports, right? right? Is there anything wrong with watching sports? No. Okay, but I'm going to tell you why I brought that up. Is because there was a person that was under one of my professors at college, and he came to the Lord. Actually, he was a friend of one of my professors. He came to the Lord. And he, before he came to the Lord, that was his whole life was sports. His entire life was geared towards sports. And then when he met the Lord, he realized this is an idol of mine, and he gave it up. And one day, my professor and another one of the people said, let's go to the, whatever, the uh, Atlanta Braves game or something, right? And that guy freaked out. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, we're going to a sports game. And he said, how can you do that? They didn't carry the same bondage that he did. And all of a sudden, he's trying to take and impose his supposed freedom, freedom yeah, on somebody else when he's not in freedom at all. He has put himself in a state of bondage. So you see, you, anything can get taken to an extreme, even Christmas trees, like we talked about before. Yes, you had something. Oh, no, even no. computers. Could computers, computers. anything. That's right, anything can become an idol. Uh, what, Pokemon Go, right? Because somebody quit their job like three days after it was introduced so that he could, yeah, it made the news. He, he quit his job just to go play Pokemon Go. That is a person that's got a problem. He's got a real issue. He will later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'll later. That's right. If you don't eat work, you don't eat, folks. Unless you're in Obama's America. Um, then they just give you a check and say, go eat. Um, okay, so where was I? Um, uh, vegetarianism. Vegetarian is mentioned simply because it's contrary to God's law. Um, uh, man was given authority over the creatures of the earth in Genesis 9-3 after the flood of Noah, which I read you. 
God said this to him. Oh, I, I put it. I didn't even have to go and read it to you. Okay. At the time of Moses, certain dietary restrictions were introduced for a single group of people and for a specific purpose. No other people on the planet had those rules except the people of Israel. They were for a specific purpose and for a set period of time. They were not forever. Okay? People email me and they say, you shouldn't be eating this and that and one thing and another. They are stuck in bondage. They are under the bondage of the law. They're trying to work their way to the heaven by being pleasing to God through the fulfillment of the law, and they will never get there. Now, I bring up the, uh, the point time and time again. Who was it in Acts chapter 10 that received uh, the Lord Jesus and received the Holy Spirit at that time? Peter. No. Cornelius. Cornelius, Peter. Peter. Yeah, that's right. Peter told Cornelius, okay? Was Cornelius a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile. He was an observant Gentile. There's nothing to indicate that. You can't read that into the account. The Ephesians received the Lord. Paul never said anything about their dietary. If it is not mentioned as being prohibited, then it is allowed. And it is never, never mentioned in the context, which is, what is context for the church age? The epistles of Paul. That's right. The church age epistles are Paul. That's it. Okay? Once again, Peter is written to who? Jews. To the Jews. Hebrews is written to Jews. the Jews. Even though Hebrews is written to explain why the Gentiles have had this benefit all this time, it's written to the end-time Jews. And you can understand that. Like I said, let me really quickly, in case you haven't seen this, and I think everybody here has, but somebody online may not have it. This will take just a second. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'll go through it in detail again sometime, but I'm just going to give you a very quick brushstroke of it, is that we have the Bible, the law, you've got the four Gospels, which are a part of, actually the three Gospels are a part of the law. You've got John, which is set apart as unique. You've got Acts, which is the transition to the church age. You've got Romans through Philemon, which is the church age. Then after that, you've got Hebrews, which is explaining this to the Jewish people. All right, it's addressed to who? The Hebrews. the Hebrews. That's right. So it's not addressed to us. Okay, we're the Gentile-led church age. This doesn't mean that there aren't Jews in the church. It means that this is predominantly Gentile-led church age. After that comes the book of James, which is written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Then you, after that, you have the letters of Peter, Peter one and Peter two. I'm sorry, yeah, Peter and Peter one and two. Peter, which is written to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, or yeah, anyway, okay, to the Jews. And then you have 1, 2, and 3, John, and you've got Jude, and you've got Revelation. These ones fit the same pattern as, whoops, where is it? Uh, uh, John, fit the same pattern as this. They're unique. We won't get into why right now, but they fit the same pattern. The book of Revelation has the church age letters at the beginning, 1 through 7. Okay, I'm sorry, 1 through 3, the seven letters to the church. Then you've got Israel again, which corresponds with this part right here. Where is that? Uh, this part right here, and then you've got the end of the book of Revelation where everything is united together, which fits this and which fits that. So you've got the structure of the Bible telling us redemptive history, what God is doing. It shows you what God is doing. Right now, we are here. If something is not forbidden here, such as eating pork or observing a Sabbath day, then we're not required to do it. And if you take anything from all of these other areas, you're confusing the theology of what God has intended. He is intended that Paul gives us our instructions for the church age. If you get away from Paul, theology is going to be askew. That is all there is to it. And what was the guy's name? I'm trying to think of it right now. 
he wrote this eons ago. He said, when people start getting away from Paul, the church is going to start declining. And what has been happening in the past 50 or 80 years? We're getting away from Paul. We're inserting all of the synoptic gospels and we're inserting the Beatitudes. That's all some churches ever talk about is the love of God. He loves everybody, tolerance and all of this stuff. I'm sorry, you've gotten away from proper theology. When you start taking these guys, Hebrews and uh, James and Peter, and you start applying... Let me show you how you can tell this. I'm not going to get into it in detail, as I said, but let me show you how you can tell this. It's from the book of Romans, and so you're going to hear this again, but it's a good time to hear it so that you can understand when we get there again. Oh, I remember that. When you hear something twice, you always remember it more. Um, It's Romans... um, um, Oh, it's right here. Romans chapter uh, 9. He says, As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. All right? and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Who is he speaking of? Gentiles. That's right. He's speaking about the Jews being taken out of favor and the Gentile churches, now you are my people. Well, guess who else uses those exact same verses, the exact same verses in his writings? Who is it? It's a lot. It's a prophet. Well, yes, they come from uh, Amos or uh, Hosea. Hang on. They come from uh, uh, Hosea 1.10. All right? Who uses those same words, though? Who uses that same set of verses quoting them? You mean a modern teacher? No, no. I'm talking about somebody else in the New Testament. James, Peter, or Hebrews. It is. It's Peter. And he says... um, uh, I'm going to find it here in just a second. Anyway, he cites it, and he says, you were once not a people, and now you are the people of God. He mm-hmm. cites the same thing. Well, how can he be saying that if he's speaking to the, he's speaking to the Jews? It's because this, Peter, is written to the end times Jews. And they are now the people of God, because why? The church has been taken out. And so if you look at that, and that's why chiasms are so important, that in the book of Hosea... Um, yeah, that in the book of Hosea, I've got it and I've showed it all to you before, forms a chiasm. And that chiasm shows you what God is going to do in the future. It first shows that the Gentiles would be grafted in and they will now be God's people and the Jews are out. And then that the Jews would be regrafted in, Romans 9 through 11, and that the Gentiles would be out. Why are they out? Because they're out. We're gone, right? That is what's happening there. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I can't find it right offhand, but he uses those same verses... And he uses the same premise. Now, oh, um, no, that's not it. I thought I saw it there. Anyway, it's Peter, and uh, it's right in there. And uh, I could spend all the rest of the day. Oh, I'm looking in Romans anyway. So um, let me go back to Peter really quickly and see if I can find it for you. If I can't, uh, uh, just trust me on it, and we'll we'll uh, uh, do 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 do. Hang on. You are now. All right. Well, I'm not going to find it anyway. Isn't First Peter. Two. Ten. Ten. Okay. Yes, there it is right there. And isn't that funny? I was just getting there too. Um, here it is. But you are royal, a chosen generation. Now remember who he's writing, writing to. To the pilgrims of the dispersion. He's writing to Jews who have been dispersed. Okay. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, which is exactly what we have been called by Paul. All right. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, they were the ones that were in light until they were cast out out of favor, right? He says, who were once a people, but uh, not a people, but are now the people of God. 
who have not obtained mercy, but now have, have obtained mercy. He's saying the same thing that Paul says about the Gentiles. He's saying about the Jews. So this is showing you that the structure of the Bible is trying to show us that redemptive history is laid out in the Bible. Okay? Paul's letters, in other words, and it was a long time to get to this point, but Paul's letters are where we get our theology. Everything else is useful for edification and, you know, that the man of God may be fully equipped. What is that? Uh, 2 Peter 3, or 2 Timothy 3.16, I think. But it doesn't mean that all scripture applies at all times in the same way. I get edified by the Psalms, but it doesn't mean that they apply to me in the same way as they may have applied, you know, at the coming of Jesus. I get edification from the book of Esther, but it certainly doesn't apply to me as a Jew, right? So you have to be careful of the context, who is being spoken to, what dispensation is being used, and Paul is where it's at. That's why this modern Hebrew roots movement is such a poison. It's because they keep reinserting the law. They keep reinserting things that do not belong in New Testament theology. And it's a sign of people working their way to heaven, and they will never get there never in a million years. That is what Paul speaks of again and again and again. But they reject Paul because Paul doesn't make any sense to them because they're, they've got this thing stuck in their head that I have to do this and I have to do this. My teacher tells me that. Don't listen to the guy. He's riding you down the wrong path. Okay. Anyway, let's go back to where we were. We're in um, Romans 1. Uh, um, where was I? Um, yeah, well, I've got... Oh, yeah. Okay, dietary restrictions. However, when incorrect thinking about uh, who God is steps into the equation, going back to vegetarianism, animals are elevated above humans. They're not just elevated to, I'm going to take care of them as I take care of myself, but they are uh, elevated above humans. Where can we find an example of that India. right now? What? India. Well, India is one of them. That's a perfect example. That's a, a societal, uh, but it's becoming that way in America too. Where is one example of this in American society? Animals. With animals being elevated above humans. What? Elephants. Well, I'm thinking more specifically of, of, of ripping the baby out of a womb of a mother and saying that it's okay, but you can't eat a turtle egg. Or if you destroy an eagle egg, then you will go to jail, right? They have elevated the animal above the human being. What is inside of a human mother is not a human. But if you destroy a turtle egg at a turtle beach, you will go to jail for destroying a turtle. Okay, I want you to know that. So uh, that that is just a perfect example for us. But yes, India as a society is completely down that path. But um, uh, I even say that invariably when questioned about whether human abortion is acceptable, PETA members, if you ask a PETA member, if they say you're PETA, you say, well, how do you feel about abortion? I'll say, it's perfectly fine. Almost invariably, a person that belongs to PETA will say, that's okay. All right? Um, they'll answer in the affirmative. And yet they will... My example, they will guard a nest of turtles with their life. They'll go out there and they literally will spend their lives guarding nests of turtles on Turtle Beach. And if I go down there and I want to have turtle soup, I'm going to get in trouble, right? Remember when we were young, we used to be, we used to be able to watch the turtles go out. They'd break open their eggs and you'd watch them go down to the shore. And, you know, now if you stand around those things and you do any distraction at all, they're going to take you away, right? You, you, they have placed the creature above God. They have placed it above human life. It, it, it's just crazy. Anyway, um, uh, so let's see here. Um, in their attempt to throw off God's rule, they will have their agenda introduced into government legislation and thus bring others under their idolatrous practices. Now, everybody 
has to follow suit with what they believe. And it may be a very minor, and don't get me wrong, protecting the turtles is a great thing, but there's a point where it becomes unreasonable. I don't know if you remember, um, when was it, when Clinton was president and Hillary was given a uh, headset, I think from a, a, an Indian, and it had a Native American eagle feather in it. And that lady got arrested. They handed her in because she gave him a headdress with an American e eagle oh feather God. in it. Which they do molt. Yeah, they, they do molt and there's no proof. Yeah, but anyway, you're not allowed to, to have them. You're not allowed to possess them or anything. So this is the type of thing that happens in a society when we start getting away from what's reasonable and what's normal. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, this is where Europe and America are both heading because of the far left agenda. It's a two-headed monster, a throwing off of God's rule, and then replacing it with a humanistic attempt to subordinate man to the creation. All right, out in California. They have enough water in California to take care of all of California without any problem at all. But that water is tied up because of guppies and because of, of you know, a certain type of fish that's just a, a different... You know, it lives in a different river, so they give it a different name than a, the same fish in another river. And they say, we've got to protect this fish. And so that water cannot be used for human use because they've set it aside. It's crazy. It, it, it's crazy thinking. It's fine to protect the water, don't get me wrong, but it is not fine to be crazy. And they're crazy. Okay, anyway. Um, let's see here. Um, but sin is sin, and it will find its form in whatever means is comfortable for the individual. Some will bow to gods of wood and stone, some will bow to the opposite sex and reverence, and some will bow to their own sex and ungodly lust. Others will find their god in heroin or in the pursuit of gold. The creature is now served rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What Paul means by introducing this phrase is that when all of the created things have perished, God will still remain holy, unstained, and perfect. He is blessed forever. Thus, our temporary idolatry will be seen in the true light, which it always was. He is the fountain of all existence, all life, and all goodness. And therefore, instead of shunning him, we should all proclaim to him, Amen. The truth of God endures, and we give you our worship. So be it, and Amen. All right, that's what Paul is trying to say to us right there. Let me uh, make a little note right here. And yes, we have time. Go ahead. Because of this. Hang on, he's got a question. Sorry. Verse 25. Yes. It says, The truth of God for a lie. Mine has a little note, the lie. The lie. That's exactly right. The lie. The lie. That's so correct. This is Satan's lie? It, well, it, that's, that goes back to what I said up here. It says, The word lie is pseudoi. It is a falsehood, a pseudo-God and not the true God. So what you're doing is you're taking and you're making a substitute. The lie for the God. You're making an exchange, all right? Satan wanted worship. That's right. Well, and yeah, Satan wants worship, but yeah. Satan is the father of lies, yeah. right? That's the reason I asked, was this referring to Well, Satan? I wouldn't say it's referring to Satan specifically, okay. but it's the lie, which he's the father of lies. Okay. So it's, it's the result of what Satan has introduced. Mm -hmm. yeah. Didn't you do that with Eve when he said, nay, have God said, I don't want know it in the King James, but... That's all right. Or does it go with... I'll forgive you. Nay, is it, have God said... And he was trying to get God had given them something, and he tried to twist it around. Twist it. He and didn't. So that was a lie. Well, it, it it was. It, let me read it to you. And it, that's a good verse to go to for that. The, the lie. Hang on. Um, we'll go back here. And he said, um, uh, "Do do 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 do." Where is it? Uh, it's chapter three. And then he said, um, uh, uh, 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, the fruit of the tree of, oh, here it is. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Right? So he asked the question kind of in a, a, a an odd way because he did say they can eat of every tree of the garden except one. Right? And so then she answers, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay? Now, was that a lie? Actually, no. But it was, well, it was, it was a half. It was a half lie. The best lies are always embroidered with a little bit of truth. That's right. That's because the question is, did they die when they ate of the fruit? No, the answer is yes and no. Yeah, and that's the half. But, but Physically, they did not. And that's all that they were concerned about. He says, you're not going to lie. So he told them a truth in one sense, but in the other sense, they died spiritually at that moment. Right. It was done. The connection with God was severed. And once again, fine that... The print was ignored. The what? The fine print. Yeah, the fine print was ignored. That's a very good way of looking at it. So he, he deceived them. And that's why he's a deceiver. He brought in a lie, but he brought it in under the guise of a truth. They're not going to die. And Adam lived 930 full years. Mm -hmm. So he didn't die. So can he be said to lie? The answer is yes, because that spiritual connection, that death, which we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 a minute ago, that is what happened. Man is a, a created being. He died phys or spiritually. And as I try to say each week, and sometimes I forget to say it, but it's a good point for people to remember, is if you don't get the first death, the spiritual death, corrected before the second death comes, meaning your physical death, you will remain forever spiritually dead. And you will never be reconciled to God. And that is what we have to worry about, is the spiritual life which is in us. There is no life until we come to Christ. And so you've got to get that spiritual death corrected. And that's what he doesn't want, because he knows you're going to die physically sooner or later. What he doesn't want is for you to be regenerated spiritually, and that's calling on Christ. That's believing in the promise of God, which is the Messiah. Okay, And so... There's there's truth and there's lies in there, but there was much more lie because he knew the inevitable end of what would happen with man. He's the, the a liar and the father of it. So anyway, go ahead. One twenty six. Twenty six. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even they were in exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Okay, this was something that um, MacArthur talked about, and he made a point, which I, I'll try to remember. I'm not going to bring it up right now. But he said, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, even their women. And he said, he, he mentions the women first. Yeah. Okay, I, I will bring it up now. And I'm going to try to remember what he said because I don't want to misquote the guy. But he said, why would he say the women first instead of the men? <clears throat> how Adam and Eve went down? Well, that is how Adam and Eve went down. And he didn't bring that up. He didn't bring up that point. He I brought it up. They never mentioned the women. They never mentioned the women. That's right. Uh, John MacArthur's premise was, and I, 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 I found a fault in it, and I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to go have to go back and re-listen to what he said. But he said something about how the the woman is the one that carries the child, and so she has a natural affection in her, which is more surprising when she goes to lesbianism than when a man goes to homosexuality. And so that's why he said it's more prominent or more pronounced than the woman. And I disagree with that, and I'll try to remember why I disagree with it in just a minute when I'm explaining this to you. But it, it's something that I'm not sure that I entirely agree with the way he said it. Um, uh, but I, I'm more in favor with what Jim brought up, is that the woman was deceived first. 
okay? And Paul brings up the woman uh, later in a couple other contexts in the Bible. It's also why, and I bring it up a lot and people don't want to hear it, but it's also why women are not to be teachers and preachers of men, okay? Very specifically, why? Because they base their theology on what? Emotions. And when you insert emotion into theology, and this is something that I say and people get really bent out of shape over this, when you insert emotion into theology, you immediately err. And I'm not talking about being emotional about theology. That's completely different. I am emotional about theology, and you've seen me cry sometimes when I'm talking, especially at an a, a Easter Day sermon or a Resurrection Day sermon, when I, I start talking about the cross and I start breaking down and crying. I am emotional about theology. I'm not emotional because of theology, or my theology is not based on my emotions. And there's a difference. When you base your theology on emotions, you will immediately depart from the Word. And what does that mean? When you say, somebody comes to you with a hard question about heaven or hell or of, you know, a, a, a son or a daughter or this or that, the natural inclination is to insert your emotions in there and to cave on your theology in order to comfort them. And you can't do that. You, can't do, you cannot do that. You have to be firm in your theology before somebody comes with a hard question. And that's why in last Sunday's sermon I brought up the, uh, the, uh, the point in there that uh, it was the golden calf, the testing of the sons of Levi, but I brought up the point there that um, you have to be prepared in advance in case one of your grandchildren comes up to you, and I use grandchildren in this church because most of us are older here, but uh, it, when it, one of your grandchildren comes up to you and says, I'm gay, how are you going to respond to that? Because if you let your emotion direct your theology, you are pretty soon going to be sitting in a congregationalist church up in Massachusetts and saying, it's okay. Okay, you can't do that. And that is, what, that is exactly why Paul says that women are not to teach or have authority over a man, is because it's based on emotions. It's not a slam against women. It's not anything that says we all have a certain ability. We are all geared in a certain way. It is obvious that women are geared in a different way than men. There's a logical order to the way that the universe is structured. And when we violate that, bad things start to happen. And the Bible gives us the, the way of avoiding that. Okay? Yes, you had something? No, that, no. That, of course, it's just speculating. Is it women, or is that... I, it's a good point, don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's just that I, I you know... Oh, no, 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 no. I'm remembering the point right now. Okay. I, I thought about it, and while he was saying it, I thought about it, and I don't remember what it was, but I didn't agree with his premise. Okay, so I will think of it, hopefully, while we're going through this, and we got another five minutes. So, anyway, here we go. Paul uses the term that God gave them up for a second time. And this is the second instance where sexual sin is involved. When we reject God, a spiral of depravity results, which leads inevitably to a state of sexual perversion from one form to another, each building upon resentment for God and what he has ordained. Why would we resent it? Because he says, this isn't healthy for you to do this, or this, or this. And we say, but I want to do it. This makes me feel good. I have authority when I do this thing. This and this. We insert all of these emotions from ourselves into what we're doing, and we get angry at God because I'm enjoying this. Right? Do you see that? Okay, so um, Paul shows us that this inevitably leads to lesbianism. And as we will see tomorrow, homosexuality. Paul calls this particular sin vile passions because the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. In the Greek of this verse, Paul uses the term thelelai, thelelai, for women, or literally females. 
in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus says the following. Have you not read that he made them at the beginning, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this verse, he uses the term theli for female and switches to geneki for wife. A gineko means wife. I would call Hideko my gineko. All right. Uh, she is a woman in right standing with the natural order in her union to the man. However, Paul doesn't use this concept when speaking of the lesbian in union in Romans 1.26. They are females exercising vile passions with females and are therefore working against the natural order. See what I'm saying? He made them male and female, uses that word that Paul is using, and then when they get married, they become a gineke, a wife, a spouse, all right? Okay, um, Paul doesn't use that. They're not married. They're doing something that they remain females, okay? Um, he speaks of the woman before speaking of the men. This is to highlight the immensity of the breakdown in what is right, okay? This is what also what um, uh, I think, this is also what um, MacArthur said, but there's more to it than that. Um, women are the bearer of the child in the womb and the homekeepers as children are raised. Therefore, the degenerate attitude is noted first. Paul's words then ask us to realize that what he is speaking of is perversion. Okay? Now, people don't want to hear that in today's world. And if you say that out on the street, somebody's going to come and attack you. They say, I'm not a pervert. They are. According to the Bible, they are. It de-emphasizes what is intellectually correct, what is spiritually noble, and what is emotionally pure. It emphasizes what is mentally twisted, spiritually ungodly, and emotionally obsessive and damaged. Paul will use a similar wording in the next verse when speaking of such conduct between males. Little life application. Read 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. Be willing to stand on moral purity and reject what is sexually immoral. If you are struggling with this in your life, ask the Lord to strengthen you. 1 Corinthians 16, 18, and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. Um, for they refused my spirit and yours, therefore... Oh, I don't know why I picked that verse. 1 Corinthians... I must have meant something like 1 Corinthians 16... Well, what you could I, do is... I don't know. I have no idea. the power that was in the middle of that list you just erased there. The yeah. Sanctification. Sanctification. That's right. Yeah. Power to the power to be sanctified. That's right. I don't know why I said 1 Corinthians 16. I, maybe I meant 1 Corinthians. I don't know. I have no idea. For they refresh my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men has nothing to do with... So I'm going to make a note about that, and uh, I'm going to find out what I asked you to read. And maybe it was 16, 1 through 18. I don't know. 618? 618? That might be it, because I have fat fingers, and I do that a lot. What is 1 Corinthians 618? Yes, that's it. Thank you. Against that's right. Thank you, and that's exactly right. My fat finger. I do that a lot. I type two letters or two uh, numbers, so it's one Corinthians six, eighteen. So thank you for that. And then we're on one twenty-seven next week. And let's see here. Um, uh, Paul, would you close us in prayer tonight? Sure. sure. Thank you. Nice and loud, so they can hear online. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the privilege of uh, sitting and studying your word, Lord. And we thank you for Charlie, who's done immense study to uh, reveal truths in your word that we wouldn't normally have. We thank you for him. Lord, just uh, bless each one here. Um, may that uh, may give us a good evening and rest for tomorrow. 
and that, Lord, we might be uh, used of you according to your special purpose for each one of our lives. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me put this thing out and then say goodbye to these folks here. Um, let's see here. We're going to go to break. All right, and it'll take just a second. If you want, turn around and say hi to them. There they are. Okay, we love you guys. I want you to have a wonderful week, okay? Bye-bye. All right, that's off. And thank you. 1 Corinthians 6, 8.